uh, it's absolutely a pleasure for me to be your host for the day uh, for the Thinkers Dialogue. And uh, this is the, a series that we have been running on a weekly basis, and we've had some amazing guests. But I think today we have a very special friend, Michael Green, who's joining us uh, from London. Uh, Michael actually is uh, the Chief Executive Officer for the Social Progress Imperative. Uh, but more than that, I think uh, I can hazard to say that he's one of my dear friends with whom I've worked over the last few years, in fact, probably at least half a decade. Uh, we have done some amazing, interesting work on things like social progress index in India for the Indian states, for Indian cities. We are trying to do something on child progress index and so on and so forth. So we have worked together in this uh, area. Uh, but then more than that, I think uh, he's a close collaborator with Michael Porter, uh, with whom, and Scott Stern, with whom he actually developed the whole idea of social progress index, uh, which has become, uh, from my point of view, a de facto standard on understanding as to how to really measure uh, economic, uh, uh, social development in the world. Uh, he's done multiple books. He's been uh, part of uh, the UK government, uh, has lived in a very interesting place, which is his favorite uh, uh, place for Russia. Uh, and has worked on issues uh, pertaining to that. And uh, of course, he's been ranked amongst the 100 most connected people in the United Kingdom. Uh, so we are talking to a very special person, a dear friend, Michael, so kind of you for accepting our invitation and being on this interaction uh, called the Tinker's Dialogue. Good evening, Amit. Uh, great pleasure to be with you. I, we always enjoy conversation, so how could I refuse? Thank you. So we'll just quickly dive into this uh, conversation and let me ask you, like, there is this very important thing that the world is talking about, and that is that GDP is not destiny. GDP is just not the way we have to measure progress. There has to be something else beyond. What is it? How do we really tackle this issue? Well, maybe I should start by saying why I think GDP is a wonderful thing. Because I think we have to look at the, the context and sort of the flow of history about how we've thought about the success of our societies. And so in pre previous centuries, the success of a society has been measured in things like how much gold is there in the, in the ruler's treasury, which is essentially the doctrine of mercantilism. And then you move on and you find in the 19th century, the domination of the idea of the gold standard. So there the idea was your key economic metric is are you protecting the value of your currency against gold? And that economic metric, that what they called sound money, led to huge macroeconomic imbalances and variations. But you know, recession was inflicted on economies in order to maintain the parity of, of, uh, of currencies with gold. But that was seen as a price worth paying. So GDP emerges out of the Great Depression of the 1930s with a real sort of sense that actually, no, the key metric for an economy is that we're growing the pie and that actually growing the pie for everyone really matters. So GDP actually is a radical um, and critical and in largely benign in invention. It actually says our key metric for success of our economy is that we're growing the pie, because if the pie is shrinking, that's bad for everyone. And in so doing, what GDP then does is it starts to dominate economic management after the Second World War, creates this focus on the importance of economic growth. And we know that economic growth has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and done a lot for the world. The problem is that GDP is a specific measure about economic activity, and it excludes a bunch of other things. And we've known this since it was created. I mean, the guy who created GDP, Simon Kuznets, you know, when he first launched his report in 1934, said 
don't use this as a measure of the welfare of society, use this as a macroeconomic tool. And so we've known that GDP doesn't talk about, you know, the things that matter in life. It doesn't talk about justice or freedom. It doesn't say anything about the environment. It doesn't say anything about distributional issues. So the problems of GDP have been well known since it was created. But in some sense, it was so successful, everyone thought, well, that's good enough. And so you sort of reach this high point with a famous misattributed quote to Bill Clinton about it's the economy stupid. But essentially, that was the idea, if you are a politician trying to get reelected, if you keep the economy growing, everything is going to be fine. But what we've seen in the last sort of, you know, I think 15 years, I think it was really cemented by the global financial crisis of 2008, was the sense of no matter how useful it is, there is a hollowness to GDP. And that was very much reflected in that global financial crisis that, you know, economists like me were all celebrating how we'd really cracked um, you know, long-term economic growth and end to boom and bust, economic growth with low inflation and low unemployment. Everything seemed to be fine until suddenly, wham, the global economy falls off a cliff. And actually, our economic indicators like GDP weren't telling us the full story. And I think that opened up a conversation that has really started now. It has then been driven, I think, by the environmental challenges around climate change in particular, the rise in inequality, the rise in populism have actually refocused the conversation about saying, actually, GDP isn't bad, but it's incomplete. And so how do we, if GDP isn't automatic, rising GDP isn't automatically giving us better lives, then we need to have some wider perspective on measuring the progress of our societies. So Michael, when you're saying that GDP is not the most appropriate measure in terms of understanding welfare, but the world has also gone through a very ama uh, amazing turmoil in the last 12 months. So mm -hmm. how do you really see uh, this whole thing of boom, bust cycles, how economy is growing? And because suddenly we, we are seeing that economies are shrinking across the world. And how do you think this measure is probably not the right measure given the present circumstances as well? So the Social Progress Index that we created is a measure of uh, the social performance of a society based entirely on non-economic indicators. So unlike Human Development Index or other measures like that, there's no GDP in our Social Progress Index model. What that lets us do is then look at the relationship between GDP and social progress. And the one the headline finding is, is that broadly, richer countries tend to have higher levels of social progress. So getting more GDP, if you want more social progress, getting more GDP is not a bad idea. What we also see is that GDP is not destiny. At very similar levels of GDP, you can have very widely varying levels of social progress. So that tells you, it tells us, I think, empirically that this idea of there are different types of economic growth, some of which are more or less productive in social progress, is actually a fact. So we've got to think about the quality of our economic growth. So and then sorry, go ahead, please. No, no, then I think the second one, I think, is then we, what we're going to see is what's going to be the impact of shocks. And I think if anyone says they know what the impact of COVID is going to be, they're, they're a fool or a liar, because this is an unprecedented crisis and we've got to see how this is going to shake out. But certainly we are seeing, are we going to see a dramatic, at least short-term reduction in GDP? What's the social fallout of that going to be? And I think we're still studying that at the moment to see what it is. And I think what we're probably going to find is that it's how we respond to that shock that's more important than the shock itself. So 
Michael, are you, are you trying to say that we have to uh, look at uh, investing as economies in social infrastructure more than focusing on things like, say, uh, monetary policy, fiscal policies, or uh, whatever, uh, to really make the world a better place? I think it's about widening our lens. Since economists can't say, we've got the macroeconomic variables, uh, you know, growth, unemployment, inflation sorted, and then the job's done. Um, actually, we need to be asking ourselves a wider set of questions. And that might have been a heretical viewpoint 15 years ago. But this is it's interesting listening to central bankers, you know, whether you're here listening to the former Bank of England head, Andy, Andy Haldane, people at the Federal Reserve, other central banks are all starting to talk about these wider factors because people are understanding that both the environment and social issues are risks and opportunities um, for economic prosperity. In the sense, if economic prosperity is built on fragile environmental and social foundations, it won't be sustained in the long term. So if you're trying to create some sustainable long-term economic growth, you've got to factor the economic and the social into it. And if you really look at this metric that you've developed on social progress, how, how do you think the world performs from your point of view? Of course, you're saying that there is a gap that exists, but then how does the world really perform at this point in time? Well, I think you know, there is this thing about you know, the world is going through this extraordinary period of, of rapid progress. The fact that we've managed to reduce the proportion of people living in poverty at a time when the global population has expanded so extraordinarily. You know, got, this, is, this, is, this is a huge success of what humanity has achieved in the last 50 or so years. And we see this in our data. We see that the world is making progress um, across a range of the social progress metrics and in aggregate. Almost every country is progressive. The issue is that that progress lags far behind our ambitions. So we use social progress index as a way of tracking progress against the sustainable development goals. And our projection is that on current trends, the sustainable development goals targets for 2030 won't be met until 2082. Now, I think that's not just a sign about um, uh, the UN being over ambitious. It's the fact that actually we've got to recalibrate what we're prioritizing. So I think in, within the SDGs is a warning about social and environmental risk that needs to be taken into account. So the message we would take from our data is the world is not moving fast enough to address those social and environmental risks. And if we don't, we're going to see the impact in a whole range of ways, including on the economies. What kind of impacts do you foresee to really come well, yeah, I mean, I think on a number of fronts. I think one is, I think, obviously, the catastrophic risk of climate change. We can't avoid that one. But also other forms of environmental degradation that have both human and um, political instability costs, like the whole global water crisis. So the one is around the resource piece. I think the second one, and then, which is tied to that in part, but it also is independent, is the political risk. That if people are really feeling, if citizens are feeling that despite the GDP numbers go, are going up, our lives are not getting better. But there's a real sense of stagnation of living standards, both on the average and for large sections of populations. That's going to manifest itself in political instability. It's going to have a whole range of potentially negative effects. And the third one is the fact there's a whole lost opportunity. I think we see in our data a lost opportunity if we're not investing in people properly. You know, I think there's no, I think it's no accident the, the Scandinavian countries, for example, have been so successfully both on social progress and economically. By investing in things like gender equity 
and being leaders in gender equity, I think they'll actually help their economies. And so social progress, advancing social progress is a win-win. It improves people's lives, but it also creates a, a driving dynamic force for the economies, for the economy. And I think countries, economies that don't pay attention to social progress are going to be paying a price in the long term. So you, you yourself said something very uh, important, and that was about political risk. And the way the world is changing politically, uh, it seems to be alarming, uh, so to say, or at least at least the side of the uh, aisle would say that democracy is the right way of functioning or whatever. They see an alarming rise in authoritarian leaders or whatever. How do you really read this? Like, do you think social progress as an idea gives you an indication as to how these political risks will unfold in the future? And some examples from the data that you might have actually seen. Yes, I think, you know, you've got to break this down a bit because I think there are different types of democracies. Some are more mature and more functioning than others. But certainly, I think we would say if you look at the rise of populism in the United States in the last decade, and if you look at the rise of populism in the UK, manifested particularly through the whole Brexit issue. I mean, we do see that this is a taking place in a decade where we've seen social progress in the United States go backwards and social progress in the UK stagnate. I think that's not, obviously there are other factors involved there, but I think in that world post-financial crisis, when there was a sense of <clears throat> anger about the, the, the banks receiving so much money and then citizens really not seeing their lives getting better, I think has had an effect on, you know, um, catalyzing a certain level of appeal of populism within those countries. So I think that's that's part of the story in some of those sort of more mature democracies. I think if you're looking at places that perhaps like Russia, which is which is a newer and more imperfect democracy, I think you've got a different kind of populism and a more Russian phenomenon. But I think if you're looking perhaps at somewhere like Brazil. You've also seen that slightly you know, empty economic growth. Um, the steam was running out of some of the of the progress against poverty. They may have fed some of the anger that drove the Bolsonaro election. So I think there's a, there's a, there's factors there. Where I think slower social progress actually has an effect on on the politics and it creates discontent. And also, I think we see in our data is that there's a very strong relationship between the aspects of social progress that we call sort of human rights freedoms, inclusion. There's a strong link between those aspects of social progress and life satisfaction. And I think I wonder whether if you take places like the countries of the Arab Spring, places like Tunisia, these were countries that historically had done reasonably well in putting bread on the table, but hadn't done so well in terms of giving people rights. And that maybe actually that lack of rights in other parts of the world is fueling some of the popular resentment, popular uprisings, etc. That we may be seeing in places like Belarus or indeed Russia today. So, but when, when you let's dig deeper into this uh, proposition that you're saying, uh, understanding US, like there is, of course, what you're saying is that slower uh, growth and social progress and things, which might have actually created this problem of uh, what I call populism in the United States. But do you think with the present election, this is something which has been taken care of, or there are some underlying issues that have to be immediately? taken care of, or else we might actually see another populist leader coming through in the next four or eight years. Yeah, I think the idea that the sort of the populist, the dagger has been plunged into the heart of populism and it's now gone away just because Biden won the election would be absolutely deluded. I think some of the underlying factors are still there 
in the US and also countries that may not have yet elected populists. You know, across Western Europe, I think the, the threat of populism is, is just as great for a lot of the reasons in, in terms of stagnating social progress um, and feelings of frustration and alienation. So I think there's a lot of potential in this still. And the, the idea to see one election, meaning this phenomenon is gone, um, is going to be, is, is absolutely deluded. I think we do see a bit in the data, again, it's, it's a bit hard to tell because of the duration of political terms that may not have finished yet, is that we're not seeing that the populists are having much success in delivering for their populations. If we look at the countries that have gone backwards on social progress in the last decade, it certainly includes the US, Brazil and Hungary, um, all of which have had populists at some point in that period. So I think there may be a challenge for when the populists become, become the government, can they deliver? And the data seems to be suggesting not really. So are we really trying, are we really trying to say is that don't elect populist leaders or the, the opposition or what you would call us, say, the, the persons who are more pro-democracy or whatever? How, how do they really learn from this kind of data? How do they really work for the future? Well, I wonder, I mean, I think one phenomenon I think you see, you see with some populists is how they, the populist movements um, are led by someone who's not in the government. Uh, I mean, we've seen this in uh, in Italy with the Five Star Movement and Grio, who's not the party leader and not the not prime minister. Um, and similarly in Poland, where you've got Kaczynski, who leads the movement but isn't in government. So I guess one way the populists might try and deal with this is by keeping your leader outside government and allow someone else to take uh, take the blame if things don't go right. That may be a, a way for the populists to try and deal with if they can't deliver. I guess the other way they can respond is by sort of shift, trying to shift the goalposts uh, into something else. And obviously electoral manipulation is another solution. And obviously the last recourse of any government in trouble is to distract and create trouble elsewhere, which I think is a worrying trend globally if we are seeing some of those populist and authoritarian governments trying to um, deal with discontent at home by creating trouble abroad. I think for those opposed to the populists, I think what you have to do is take seriously what is driving the discontent that is fueling the populism. If you don't do that and just see it as a periodic error that's going to disappear, you make a big mistake. And this is why we think if you actually look at the underlying drivers of populism in terms of deficits of social progress, then you've actually got a much more practical way of addressing that um, to try and find a solution to the thing, the underlying malaise that is driving populism. So then what you're seeing, uh, or your insights, could be used very dangerously as well, uh, for a simple reason that a populist leader listens to you and understands what you're saying. There must be more of a reason for him to actually let these underlying factors run and probably even push them forward so that he continues to be there. So uh, how do we fight it out? Because suddenly it is not about an elected leader or whatever. There has to be much more that needs to be done and beyond the political leaders. So how, how do you think others can actually get involved when they understand these challenges? Well, I think you've got to, if you take any country and uh, what's going on with, a, with authoritarian populists, you've got to figure out what is the exit from that situation. Because for some, it might be uh, a, you know, a functioning democracy that is a member of the European Union, say, that is going through a period of populist leadership. And then so actually there's a lot of things in some sense you could say that the populist movement is a deviation from um, a stable equilibrium and actually there's a chance of reverting back to a stable equilibrium. 
And I think it's very interesting how you see in countries like Poland, there's been a lot of work to um, adjust the law, adjust the constitution, um, adjust the courts in order to lock in the position of the governing party. So clearly there's a concern among some of those authoritarian leaders and populist leaders that they worry about it slipping backwards to something, you know, their control can slip. And that's where there's these sort of constitutional manipulations taking place. And that's, that's quite dangerous, especially, you know, with, at least within the EU, there are some pressures of the, of the European rules that are keeping countries within a certain uh, limits. Um, Outside the EU, it's more more difficult. If you're looking at somewhere, yeah, other places, you know, perhaps like or Turkey or Russia or Brazil, perhaps or in Mexico, even in terms of populism, it is a question: of Where is it going to end? And is it can the can the leaders actually not deliver for their public and survive in power? Um, you know, I think so far the track record of those countries in terms of the data that we're seeing is that these are not countries where strongman leaders um, have really delivered much for their population. And how long can that be sustained politically? I think it's a big challenge for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, th there's a very interesting question from the audience, which I, I should ask. Uh, and uh, the name of the gentleman is Balachandran. He says that I see a vicious circle here. To tear away from copybook style of GDP and redefine it to include ESG factors isn't important. And consumer behavior has to be firstly changed and become more sensitive to factors other than just cost and utility. Can governments force this change through mandates and policies, or would it be more sustainable when there is a large-scale public realization? So it probably juxtaposes to your point very interestingly. So how, how do we really look at this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of paradoxes, I think, in how we act as consumers in thing in things that we don't actually want. Um you know, we, we may be buying products that are destroying the environment that we are otherwise giving money to an NGO to campaign about. So I think there's been a lot of work done in the last 20 or 30 years to try and really improve how we consume so that our consumption can be better aligned. And so we actually can use the, the communication of the market to drive the kind of world, world that we want. I think a missing piece of that jigsaw has always been about how we use our capital. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous that, you know, in many countries, UK in particular, you have people putting money into their pensions, which is long term savings. And that money is being is being not used or is being used to actually make the environment worse or not better. And in so doing, damage the future prospects of that pension holder. Yeah? And so and that is a product in part of the regulatory uh, constraints that force pension funds to be too short term in their investment perspective. So I think there's actually a way that if we can start thinking about how we can empower holders of capital, you know, small savers as well as big institutional investors to express what they want more effectively, we're going to see growing interest in these ESG factors that I think are going to have a ripple effect. Because I think it's really important to think about the, what's going to drive change in business is it's not about the hero CEO. The hero CEO is someone who's still responsible to shareholders. Uh, and so it's only going to be when shareholders, the owners of businesses, really incentivize CEOs and corporate leaders to do things differently and don't punish them for drops in short-term profits as, uh, that you'll actually see the big change. So what's going on in the capital markets at the moment? Well, I think there is some interest around, growing interest around ESG factors. Is, is really important. The problem 
is that the data is still so spongy. Um, the E bit of ESG, the environment bit, there's been a lot of work on and is getting better. The G bit around governance is very focused around corporate governance. And the S bit in the middle is incredibly spongy and messy. So I think we get, we've got to have a kind of acceleration in the quality of metrics around ESG if investors are really going to drive bigger change in corporate behavior. So this is fascinating, uh, uh, Michael. I'll come back to this pasture, but just, just a very quick, let's move ahead. In fact, you made a very interesting remark that the world is going to be achieving SDGs in 2082 uh, at the pace of change that we are actually seeing right now. So what is, one is, of course, you said that probably we have not understood the metrics right or we have not made the metrics right. Um, but what else is actually going to be stalling this uh, progress? Is it going to be uh, countries which are rich or is it going to be countries which are in the developing world? Who is really going to stall this progress? Because it's very worrying if you're talking about 2082, if something has to be achieved in 2030. Yeah, I mean, I think let me start by calling out the rich world on this one. I mean, I think on the back of the Millennium Development Goals success, everyone thought another set of goals was a good idea. The rich world thought the environment mattered, um, but basically wanted to impose another set of goals on the developing world. They kind of had to accept that it was going to be a global set of goals. And I don't think the rich world has particularly taken these seriously beyond perhaps the climate issues of different varying degrees. So I think part of the slow progress is the rich world has not yet taken these goals seriously enough for themselves. Um, the second aspect is I think, you know, and, and we see this in our data that actually the fastest progress against the SDGs is in, is in developing and emerging economies rather than the rich world. And some of the rich countries are stagnant or going backwards. The second thing I think we have to say is that there are different aspects of social progress where, you know, different aspects of the SDGs where we're in a lot of trouble. One is obviously around the environment, climate in particular. By our data, what we see is that across the environmental piece, the world is basically stalled over the last decade. So a decade that should have been the beginning of a, uh, a takeoff in, in you know, environmental quality imp improvement just hasn't happened. And that's making an ever bigger challenge. So environment is really holding us back. But the other one where we also see almost you know, even worse trends is around things like rights and inclusion, where the world has actually gone backwards. So that's a huge aspect of the SDGs. It's actually the world is deteriorating. And that's not just a few countries. That's actually the majority of countries have gone backwards on things like rights and inclusion over the last few years. The final part of it, I think, is just there are a, there are a small number of countries that are really going to make or break the SDGs. Obviously, you know, India, China, and then to a lesser degree, places like Nigeria, etc. So these countries are really, really important. And if you, you've got it, since the, the SDGs will depend on the pace of change there. And I think we've got to see is that, you know, there are, there are aspects where these countries are not moving fast enough. China is obviously very stalled on the rights issue. Um, in India, there's environmental issues where there's slow progress. And, in, and, and Nigeria is not really moving fast enough across a whole range of the kind of poverty metrics to get anywhere close to what we want to achieve with the SDGs. So, Michael, I would like to just dig deeper into this environmental issue that you have suggested. Like, of course, like we, we accept that India is probably not moved as fast enough on climate issues, but probably the geography. I'm talking about geography, not from neighborhood point of view, but in terms of like how, how the climate is affecting this place. Uh, it is expected uh, that 
we are going to run out of water in the rivers in the next 40 to 50 years what happens in that case like how how do you think what actions can we take as a country or as people to really mitigate this crisis because this crisis is just around the corner for for us uh, in just about 30 to 40 years maybe 50 years but it is it can actually be catastrophic for a country like india well this is really important I mean, when we talk about the environment we've got to make sure we're talking wider than climate change climate change is obviously the massive existential risk we've all got to manage and this is a very difficult one because the world is not yet ready with the technology to manage a necessary energy transition that is going to allow the development process to continue and that's why there's some very hard choices here and this is why the the, the COP26 conversations this year are going to be very difficult because there's a question about share of carbon but that is one part of the environmental conversation i think for a country like india in particular some of these wider ones are you know are so important like water i mean water is one we should be talking about so much more it's an enormous strategic risk that comes with a huge human cost that could be setting back economic progress as well and how do we actually manage our water resources effectively is a really critical one and then of course you've also got other issues around you know local air pollution particulars air pollution which is an issue here in London as well as in Delhi there's there's a lot of issues there we've got to address on the environmental front so the environmental stagnation is not just our failure to globally to tackle climate change but also the set of other environmental issues that we're facing and if we don't address are going to have health implications social implications economic implications and of course political implications and what do you think um, of course there is, there is a thing that the government can actually do and of course the risks are very well known uh, because but this is a fight or this is a struggle for which each one of us will have to be part of it. so how do we become part of this kind of a movement wherein we are able to solve this problem because we can't just say only governments will do something it has to be responsibility of corporations individuals and everybody it's a collective effort mm. Well, I think one of the challenges we have at the moment in the world with arising out of COVID is in the sense of the danger of um, increasing sort of not isolationism, but a disaffection with um, with economic cooperation and integration. I mean, this is about the movement of people. Uh, it's also about the hoarding of vaccines. And the danger, of course, is that once you set up a cycle of competition like this and tit for tat, is these things just start to move out of control. And if you look at the collapse of the global trading system in the 1930s, the speed with which that took place from a, you know, a very sort of open trading system to barriers going up everywhere driven by politics, we have to be very worried about how quickly that can accelerate and the need to protect our kind of global coordination mechanisms, our regional coordination mechanisms. Because ultimately it's only going to be by dialogue. Now, India cannot resolve its water issue on its own. It's going to have to work with its neighbors. We cannot solve the water issues in Europe without European without pan-European conversation and the integration mechanisms that already exist. We cannot solve climate change without global mechanisms. My hope in a sense is that what COVID does is provides a wake-up call about the need for those global coordination mechanisms. Now, what COVID has done is a manifestation of how we are, by definition, globally interconnected now, and you cannot avoid it. And the governments and the markets massively underpriced that pandemic risk. I mean, if you could have invested a billion dollars, a hundred billion dollars, you know, 15 months ago to have stopped this crisis, 
it would have been a fantastically good investment. Uh, so maybe there's something coming out of this. It's not going to be easy that creates a sense about the mandate for global coordination is a possibility. So you, you seem to be diagrammatically opposite in your view than the previous uh, US president, like Donald Trump. Like for him, COVID was something, oh, everything just should be within. In fact, that's the thing uh, that's been done in many other countries that isolationist as a policy or whatever. How, how do we really bring this reality that we are living in an integrated world? We, everyone matters to each other. There's an interconnection for businesses, for individuals, for societies or whatever. But, that, that seems to be uh, slipping away in terms of understanding. Well, I mean, it's, if you look at the, the global system and the countries that have been the real champions of the global system in the last 50 years, you know, a lot of those uh, countries have been, you know, small to medium-sized Scandinavian countries. Why? Because they realise that they need the global system to prosper. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not... I love people from Scandinavia, but it's not because there's something intrinsically nicer about Scandinavians. The Nordic countries have realized it's in their interest to have a functioning global system because they are small open economies. And in the same way, I, mean, I think in the last sort of 20, 25 years, the UK has been a big leader in the global system, which has been part of a recognition of the UK's diminished place in the world, not as a great power, but realizing that its, in, its influence comes through influencing a global system. So the strongest adherence to a global system tend not to be the great powers, but the medium or smaller sized powers. So I think if we think about the risk to that global system, it's going to be from the great powers themselves. And obviously that's one is the United States, and this has been part of the, the rhetoric of the Trump administration was this sort of American exceptionalism and the ability for America to isolate. And again, America could isolate itself much more effectively than the UK could or Sweden could. So there's, there's, a, there's a capability there. But similarly, what, you know, what's going to be the position of China and particularly India as the other two great powers in the world in balancing this? And then maybe Russia to a degree of perhaps a step down. These are, the, these are the powers that in a sense are going to make or break our global system over the next decade, is whether those great powers are willing to play along and support a global system or separate themselves out from it. And then one of the risks is we don't have leadership elsewhere promoting that global system. And I think the Europe's failure to lead in the global system, I think is, is a challenge uh, that's, that's actually holding us back. Perhaps, perhaps with some new leadership, you know, with Ngozi uh, running the WTO, perhaps we're gonna start seeing some leadership emerging elsewhere. But it's ultimately gonna be the, how the great powers play this is going to determine the shape of our global system for the next half century. Michael, you know, like to your point, uh, well accepted, but then the, there's a very important question that comes or an interesting question that comes to my mind. Uh, United Kingdom, which was the, the first country which probably globalized in a very interesting way, of course. Right or wrong is a different issue. We're not getting into that. But then you were probably uh, an empire where the sun never used to set. And suddenly you are actually talking about a very deglobalized world, very isolationist, moving away from uh, European Union, not wanting to be part of it. Uh, and uh, probably you're not uh, a part that you used to be at one point in time. So why this dichotomy in this thinking? Because from my point of view, I, I find it very surprising because I think it is gonna be hugely detrimental for uh, Britain to actually be not part of the European Union. Mm. Yeah, but there's the old, there's the joke, I think it's an Irish joke. Um, why did God give the English a country, a, a, an empire on which the sun never set? Answer, 
would you trust an Englishman in the dark? Um, which is, you know, something about it, <laughs> the view of the English. Um, but, yeah, there is a point about the UK is embar embarking on a very new path. And I think there is a, a point about understanding that, you know, Britain's prosperity was not indigenous homegrown. It was directly connected to the growth of trade and empire. Um, and that's trade in a whole range of ways from the slave trade to empire elsewhere. And that the UK was, Britain was lucky in the 18th, 19th century, was also sitting on probably the world's largest and most accessible store of hydrocarbons in the terms of the UK coal fields, coal fields of the 18th, 19th century. But aligned with energy and empire with trade, proved to be an incredibly powerful engine for economic and political success. And that, but that was, so Britain's golden era in that sense is that people sometimes hark back to was not about one of isolationism. And of course, one of our challenges for, have always historically has been trying to get anyone to buy any of our stuff. Um, that's always been a problem for Europe in general was that bullion was always flowing eastward to India and China to buy things. And India and China wasn't buying anything. You know, in the 19th century, that paradox we dealt with, it, the British Empire dealt with it by selling opium to China to try and rebalance our, our trade. So I think, there's a, I think there's a dangerous misunderstanding of seeing the UK as being a dynamic economy that was always great at manufacturing and can now reclaim world global markets. I think we could ask, find ourselves very or outside in the cold and the global economy. I think it's very worrying times, I think, for the UK from my perspective. Mm -hmm. And how would you want to solve it? <laughs> I mean, I think you've got to say is how can you play on the UK's strengths and find and really what we're good at. And I think what we do find in the UK is like there's still some sort of nostalgia for why can't we go back to making things anymore? Well, we stopped making things because once there was no empire, it turns out we weren't very good at it compared to everyone else. Um, and actually, a lot of those jobs, uh, whether it was in coal mining or you know, steel making or shipbuilding, you know, actually weren't great jobs anyway. So I think some of that nostalgia about manufacturing has to go. We have to realize where there is a strength and the strength is going to have to be around the intellectual side, which is going to be finance, creativity and education. Those are probably going to be the core pillars of the UK's, of the UK's uh, economic competitiveness underpinned by the English language uh, and a global brand. Um, and again, if we are seeing uh, movement of people slowed down by COVID or by other factors, that's a big threat. The UK has to remain open to the flow of people, not just to visit, but to study and to stay. And if you interfere with that, that I think could actually be catastrophic for the UK economy. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope you're able to overcome all these uh, issues. <laughs> but just moving ahead, you know, like uh, you yourself said uh, that there are issues of inclusion across the world. Uh, but then, just on that inclusion part, like uh, there, there seems to be this ugly head of racial uh, issues, or that has really come up. Like that racial discrimination is at the core. It continues to be a problem, uh, and things. And how do we solve that problem? Like, in fact, uh, it's very disturbing that uh, even in this world of today's age, we are discriminating against people, and it happens across the world. Uh, it happens in the U.S. It happens in uh, India. In some ways, it could happen in Britain. How do we solve these uh, problems? 
and because it matters for social progress. But I think if we are able to solve this, we are able to solve many more crises in the world. Mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, growing up in Britain in the 70s and 80s, you know, I was very familiar with the ubiquitous um, you know, racism that was around in that society, but also saw how we started to wrestle with it and squeeze it out of our dialogue and our hiring practices, etc. Um, and then we saw, you know, the end of apartheid in South Africa in one of the most egregious institution, institutionalizations of the, of the racial madness and fallacy and, you know, the heinous system. And then I think, you know, there was a, that magnificent moment in 2008 when an African-American became the U.S. president. You know, you felt maybe could this be the point at which this, this demon has been slain? And the fact that we, you know, this, worryingly, this is still here is one of the most extraordinarily depressing facts about the world. I mean, the, the, this ridiculous doctrine, this unfounded doctrine around of racial difference is still persistent in generations and amongst people who were, you know, were born within the last 10, 20 years or so. Still, this idea is still around. is extraordinary to me and extraordinarily frustrating. My hope is that the, the positive about this is the fact that we're talking about it. And I think there is a point that there is often racism has escaped because it's not been talked about. It's been allowed to exist in pockets. It's been seen disguised as being some other kind of difference, you know, like in the in the south of the United States as being southern pride. When actually what is happening is now some assumptions are being challenged. So I think it's going to be a long, hard battle about changing the norms, you know, pushing out certain behaviors and challenging things. But I do feel optimistic we are talking about these things in different ways that we can actually take this on and challenge it and make progress. Awesome. And so I, I hope we, we are able to overcome these uh, in a few years, few decades or whatever, because my only thing is that when you talk about this kind of thing, it, it's after Abraham Lincoln, we have not been able to solve it. I think it's been many months. So I do not know how many decades or centuries we will actually take to overcome this bias, but I hope we do. But and also, also, I think you have to remember with the U.S. was the way that actually um, it was about a failure of Reconstruction after the Civil War that allowed the sense the South to rebuild in some to some of that political structure in the South to rebuild, and then towards the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, a whole movement came to celebrate some of those Civil War heroes of the Confederacy, around which some of that racial politics could coalesce. So it was actually, if we see that this was actually created more recently, we can also see how it can be dismantled as well. Mm -hmm. And so if we really just move ahead on this conversation, and just a curious question. In fact, when you want to solve these challenges that the world faces, and there is this very interesting question of, of cancelling student debt in some parts of the world. Do you think that's that's a decision? And why am I asking this question is that can we actually use social progress as a lens for making policy decisions? Well, I think there's a, a thing about how we can think about it in terms of distributional effects. Um, one is sort of where is the greatest need, but also where is the greatest opportunity or need to recapitalize? And I think there is an interesting challenge that we are facing about how there is a risk that the, the, the young population are going to be fundamentally disadvantaged since the, the baby boomer generation has done very well it benefited from 
a strong welfare state, a strong economy, and then having their so, savings protected into retirement. But actually, the young generations coming along behind is getting none of that and none of those benefits. So I think thinking about some of those distributional effects, whether it's student debts particularly, or some other form of recapitalization of the young, is a, is a, I think is a technical point. My hunch would be that just focusing on student debts is just using one mechanism, and you have, it doesn't necessarily give you the most powerful intervention. I think the other ones you should be, be thinking about are other forms of recapitalization. I mean, the other one that we haven't talked about yet, of course, is gender equity. And there's a huge way to go on that as an issue. And I think thinking about how we can rebalance towards gender equity, because we have huge wasted potential by having gender inequity. And so what have we got to do to really address this in, a, in as, you know, as quick a time as possible? And that ranges from addressing issues of male violence um, through to women in the boardrooms. Um, and I think, again, what we see is that as countries have pursued faster gender equity, you've actually seen how that's benefited those societies in a whole host of ways. So this is, again, an investment that pays off itself. So how can you sort of accelerate that, you know, rebalance and recapitalize to achieve gender equity? The third one, I think, going back to what we said earlier is, you know, how do you address fundamental racial inequity? Um, and to do that, you may need to you know, deal with fundamental recapitalization of certain communities that have been fundamentally held back. I mean, the data we're seeing from the US is the way that you know, the African-American communities, in terms of not just economic metrics, but health metrics and other metrics, social metrics, have really been, you know, been held back. How can you actually create a fundamental step change in that to recapitalize those groups to ensure that there's a fair, fairer path forward? You know, like, Michael, you make a very important point in gender equity. Uh, but then in these times of COVID, what we have seen is that labor participation rate for women has probably fallen. Uh, so that means this pandemic seems to actually be catastrophic uh, for gender equity in general. Uh, how do we really emerge from this? Because whatever achievement the world would have done in the last 20, 30, 40 years might have actually got, got lost. The other point onto this itself, and I just want to ask the question in the same breath, is on education. Because a school school is closing down for the last one year, it is expected that the learning divide has actually deepened. Uh, students are probably back by about three to five years on their learning curve. Now, how do you think we overcome all these issues as we go along? Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to have to be some very, very um, strategic New Deal on the back of COVID to deal with these inequities. And as you say, I think we're seeing it ripple through in a whole bunch of ways. You know, given the labor participation, there has been disproportionate effect on women, as you say. It's I think if we don't address, we're gonna set back women's economic participation. Secondly, you've got the whole issues around, you know, the labor market who's working. I mean, sitting here in London, you know, the people in the leafy suburbs in big houses are all sitting at home teleworking to their well-paid jobs. And people in the poorer parts of London are the ones who are having to get onto the, the underground, travel to work in service sectors, exposing themselves to more risk. You know, have taken a much bigger burden than we're seeing in mortality figures in London to death from COVID. So there's a huge inequity there. And then thirdly, as you say, this whole issue around education, you know, as a parent of you know, two boys under 10, I know how hard the, the Zoom schooling is. 
but we've got it easy compared to so many kids. And the, 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 the possibility that we'll reopen up and widen educational divides is very, very worrying. And as you say, it's going to be very hard work to catch this up. I know there was some work done, someone pointed me to, about looking at the, um, the Pakistan earthquake of 2005 and the implications that had of kids being out of school. And that even a period of, se of several months out of school could knock back progress, educational attainment in terms of years. So there's going to be, have to be a very concerted effort to catch up and also with a very, very clear distributional mindset to say where is the greatest need and invest resources accordingly. So, uh, Michael, I have to ask you this question. You, you've created this very important tool in social progress, which gives us huge levels of insight. Uh, of course, how do you really use it for grassroots if impact and things like how do we do that? Like if you had to tell a policymaker, what does he need to do using this index? How, what would you want to tell him? Well, I think it varies in terms of different contexts and which level of policymaker. And then there's, but there's two aspects. I think one is, is to help policymakers um, at the national and local level to use this data to essentially understand their communities better and distribute their resources better. And if you distribute your resources better with more effective policies, it actually pays for itself. One of my favorite impact stories is from a partnership we have with one of the boroughs of London, Barking and Dagenham. They've used the social progress index, they've built a social progress index for the individual wards of the borough. And they've used that to refocus their services. By doing that, they've shifted more of their spending towards prevention. Prevention has produced positive social outcomes that have then saved them money. And I think this is part of the killer argument with governments, is that basically we can help you to do smarter things that delivers better social outcomes and ultimately it saves you money. And I think that's gonna be the driver that's gonna get governments paying attention to this, especially in constrained fiscal times. And also this is a reason why the market should pay attention. Lack of social progress is a sign of waste and therefore a sign of economic risk. And so actually the market should be supporting and prioritizing governments that are, uh, are pushing social progress, because actually these are, these are governments that are taking better stewardship of their social and environmental assets for the long term. And so if we get policymakers using the social progress index tool to achieve better outcomes and better economic performance, and that's then being pushed by the markets, rewarding that, I think you can create a virtuous cycle that drives ever more use of social progress. But the thing I've learned in this job is that uh, the people who use the social progress index, governments and other leaders, are always surprisingly with the innovative ways they use the data to do different things. So, Michael, uh, I know that you have actually authored uh, a body of work for Indian aspirational districts. Uh, so how, how do you really look at uh, some of programs like this, which are probably focused on a small region or a small number of uh, uh, districts, out of 700 or whatever, uh, how do you think that must have affected, say, social progress or how effective those programs are and how people can probably learn from it? Yes, if you take a group of the, you know, like the aspirational districts, what you're targeting is a group that's capable of the fastest catch-up. So if you're thinking about how you distribute resources and want to maximise your social progress return on the investment, it's a very smart decision. So you're taking those who've got a long way to go, but actually that means the huge largest potential to accelerate. Also, by creating a peer group in that way, what you create is the cross-learning. 
And I think this is why, you know, fundamentally I'm an optimist about the world, is that the solutions are fundamentally out there to so many of our problems. We just haven't distributed them across all different places. So I think what also something like the Aspirational Districts Programme does is it creates a laboratory of learning and a network of learning to help accelerate social progress even faster. So this is where I think a benchmark like Social Progress Index can help with by setting the, the baseline for a programme like that, track progress, identify successes, failures, etc., and share those more widely. And as you know, I'm a great believer in talking about failure as well as success. And so as we are approaching the end of our conversation, but then a couple of, one more question on GDP versus social progress. So what I hear you saying is that probably GDP does not explain everything. Social progress is one of the important things, which are non-economic factors. So do you think the world would be ready to have two indices uh, that need to be looked at? Because we, we cannot ignore that growth part of the part of the story because that that's an important thing from an economic point of view but then there is this whole social progress element so do you think the world is ready for two uh, what i call sets of things or two indices to report things and so on and so forth yeah, i think it wasn't 10 15 years ago and it is now because let me say very clearly gdp i've got nothing against it and actually i like it a lot because it's also a very important metric for government because ultimately it's telling you, can I repay my debts? Because if my economy is not growing, I cannot repay my debts in the future. So it's a very, very important macroeconomic metric that governments will always want to use. So that's why we've never taken the view that you should take out GDP. It's a GDP and. Why the and? Because everyone gets it. I mean, wherever I go in the world and talk about the beyond GDP agenda, I get no pushback. Everyone gets the GDP is incomplete. And now that people get it, and you can give them a, a practical tool to rebalance that conversation, I think they can live with it. They, that people can, are accepting it very readily. And then you have a conversation about what's the balance between the two? How do we optimise the two? That's a very manageable policy conversation, which is why I think we've seen in quite a short time the extraordinary take-up we've had of social progress index around the world. And the most important question that comes to my mind on this is about cricket and social progress. <laughs> uh, so uh, I would just wa want this conversation to move into that direction. But then is there any linkage be between India's performance, which is absolutely stunning in the last match, as you have seen, <laughs> and uh, uh, English performance? And so any social progress linkages? Well, there's certainly linkage to my productivity, which is that because of the lockdown, I had to get up early in the morning to work before the children wake up. And it's being massively damaged by listening to the cricket from India every morning when I should be working. So that has been one problem. Um, uh, I mean, look, I, mean, I do think you know, it is a huge tall order for England coming up against uh, such a strong Indian side, but also one that is so, you know, it's, its tails are in the air on the back of that amazing series in Australia. The confidence is all there. That is a really tough challenge. It's always tough for an English side playing in India with the conditions the quality of our bowlers is just not the same. So I think England has actually won already by winning one of the matches. And <laughs> I mean, it should be a 4-0. And maybe, maybe, could it be three-night match, pink ball, Ahmedabad? Could there be a chance? Okay, so if you're actually playing a bet here or, or a wager, I think it's going to win 3 1, but that, that's a separate conversation uh, on this whole <laughs> issue. <laughs> but then, 
just coming back to a very uh, important question here. What do you think India should do in its ride towards achieving social progress and improving its being? India has done well over a period of time. It has improved its score uh, without a doubt. We, we can see that in, at the regional level, uh, there are some parts of the country which have done exceedingly well. Uh, and there are those disparities that exist. But what do you think India should actually do? The one thing is I think we do see in our data is it's much harder to be a big country. So that's always going to be a challenge. Bigger countries are harder to manage. They have particular challenges of being big. So it's, you know, what India's achieved is, 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 is very positive. And there's a couple of things. One is, I think, what you see, is, I think, is it's this maximum. Where are your biggest deficits? And so I think that's about regional disparities, um, things like gender disparities, and then also seeing where are the biggest areas that are lagging behind. I think rigorous focus on those things like aspirational districts, those are your biggest wins. And then I think secondly is also in thinking about building towards the future. And again, I think we see that in India's social progress scorecard. The fact that India is actually you know, overperforming in aspects like higher education, it's been building the bridge to the future economy. It's then about how do you make sure you get everyone across that bridge. So I think really trying to make sure you're lifting up the, the most needy and bringing everyone along is going to be the really kind of big priority. But also thinking about the next bridge you've got to build. And the big one there is the environment. The, the environmental stress on India, not just from climate, but also from water, as you say, it's got to be addressed sooner rather than later. And again, if you're trying to sacrifice that for the economy, that's going to be a big mistake. And, and that, that's uh, interesting. And what do you think would be a message for the world? How do you think, what do, what do you think they need to do in the next five years to make sure that we leave a better planet for our children in the future? A message for the world? Yeah. From India or to oh, India? From so, Mike Green, please. From Mike Green. I think is, um, uh, my message to the world is, so many of the solutions are out there. If we just stop doing some stupid stuff, we're actually going to make a huge amount of progress. And once we start making progress and seeing what we can achieve, it's going to become self-fulfilling and accelerating. Michael Green, this has just been a wonderful conversation. I think I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you are going to be here with us for another round of conversation sometime in the near future. Thanks a lot for joining us today. It's just been fascinating. I mean, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.